0: I was never accused of was being fast, unless it was carefully qualified by something like "fast for his size." But I quickly found out that I was stronger than most, and so I, I liked to lift weights and uh, began to love, eventually to go into the gym, and uh, I would just put a lot of weight on the barbell, and I would get ready to lift and make sure everybody was noticing what was about to happen. And one day I was, I was in there, and, um, and we love to brag about how much weight we lifted. And uh, I went in, and I was feeling pretty good. I usually didn't use a spot, didn't feel like I needed a spot, did not anticipate any kind of injury happening. And so I got under the weight, and I got ready to, to let it go down, and uh, also didn't use the clips that day because I felt like my balance would be perfect, and the weights would not fall off the, the barbell like they can do, and that's why you need clips, and that's why they make that stuff. And so I'm going down, and as I go down, I quickly realize this is more weight than I've ever felt myself under before, and it begins to tilt, and the weights begin to come off, and things get dangerous quick, and I can't get it up, and it's getting heavier and heavier until finally a friend sees me, and he runs over, and he he catches it and saves me like just in the nick of time. I can't tell you how helpless I felt in that moment. I mean, it just felt like it was getting heavier, And heavier, and I knew there was nothing in me that could get that up in that moment, and yet I was saved. I feel like when I read through the book of Romans in the first part, that feeling comes back that feeling of hopelessness. And it's not a feeling that just kind of hits and goes away, it's like you, you find yourself more and more. Under the weight of sin, as you read Paul, up until you get to Romans 3:21. Up until that point, he is showing us that whether you are Jew or Gentile, you are a sinner. You are under sin. You are hopeless before a righteous, just God. You're feeling like there's no way that I can get myself out from under this. I am powerless to help myself. That may be why Paul begins and ends his letter declaring in his ministry, it is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. He wants them to know that there is a way by which you can be saved that is appealing to something outside of yourself. The obedience you need, it requires something outside of you. That's why he, Paul, he declares in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to whoever believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. He, he there says the, the gospel of God is the power of God on display. A gospel means good news of a victory, but as we read through Romans one eighteen to 3.20, it, the, you'll remember the news just got worse and worse. And Paul shows that both Jews and non-Jews are presently under sin, awaiting the wrath of God that is to come. Now as we think about that, we, we also find that Paul says even the best parts of us in our flesh, those things apart from Christ that we boast in to others, our wisdom, our education, our position, our wealth, our ingenuity, even those things which we, we boast in are part of the list of egregious sins that God calls his wrath down on against the Gentiles in Romans 1.30. And then he calls out the Jews for boasting in their special status with God and possessing the law without keeping it in Romans 2.23. Boasting in good gifts, yet they become part of the reason for their just judgment. And by the time we get to Romans 3.20, it almost feels like Mount Sinai itself has been dropped on our heads. And Paul says, go ahead, lift it if you think you can. You and I, we know that mountain, it does not budge under own strength. That's when Paul explains the but now of the power of God on display in the gospel. That's that gospel that centers on justification by faith alone that we read about in Romans 3, 21 to 26. See, the gospel doesn't come to, to spot sinners just in case they can't please God in their own strength. We know that that's a hopeless affair. No, the gospel boasts in the power of God to save the powerless. And that's our big idea this morning. The the gospel boasts in the power of God to save the powerless. And here's the good news. If you're feeling weak and unable to to please God this morning, the good news is that you are. But there's a gospel of a power outside of yourself that can come and save you. Now notice first in verses 27 to 28 of our text this morning that justification by faith alone it eliminates human boasting justification by faith alone it eliminates boasting and human effort the things that we can do ourselves now if you look at our text this morning it begins in verse 27 with that word then in verse 27 and I believe it's pointing back To the verses that we just read about justification by faith alone and Paul begins here by asking this question then now that we understand justification by faith alone what becomes of our boasting now who is boasting and what are they boasting at what does Paul have in mind here well we've seen that gentiles and jews they both boast but this specific particular word used here for boasting is the same word uniquely that's used in Romans 2.17, when he's talking about Jewish boasting or relying on the Mosaic law and their covenant relationship with God, understanding these things to give them a kind of hall pass against the last day of judgment. They presumed on God's grace rather than putting their faith in him. Now, the boasting here is likely both nationalistic understanding that Israel as a nation is under the protective orb of God's covenant grace. It is also likely a self-righteous boasting. It is nationalistic and it is self-righteous. Jews look to their status as the people of God, along with circumcision as a sign of the covenant and their obedience to God and the law as the grounds of their expectations of God's Grace towards them on the day of God's judgment. Now You'll remember that Paul, again, has just laid out justification by faith alone. That is the gospel of God that centers on Jesus Christ who died on the cross as a sacrifice to satisfy God's just wrath for sinners. You want to talk about power, the power to push back the wrath of God is more than superhuman strength. This is an act that only God can do. See, faith in Jesus' sacrifice is the only way to make you right with God. There is no other way. There is no alternative plan. There is no plan B or C. There is only Jesus. No human can keep God's righteous standards and please him apart from faith. See, justification by faith alone, it displays that only the power of God can save sinners who are powerless to save themselves. So Paul asks, what then does justification by faith alone do to Jews who are boasting in their possessions of the scriptures? Or their sincere efforts to obey him the best they can? Or their sacrifices for him? Or their giftedness? Or how much better they are than those around them, those those ungodly pagan nations? Or their birthright as Jews? And Paul says quickly, let me tell you what your boasting is good for. Nothing. It's excluded. Uh, the word for excluded here literally comes from a, a Greek word that means to, to shut out. So you can see th- the image, pretty, pretty obvious. Uh, they didn't play baseball, so they wouldn't know what a shutout in baseball is. Many of you don't either. But it's the idea of, of basically shutting someone out of a room. They're not allowed in. They're not allowed to be in relationship with Whatever's happening on the inside. See, Jews had to leave their boasting at the door of faith in Jesus Christ if they were going to walk through. If they wanted Christ, then they would have to walk away from their boasting. That's what Paul means when he says, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, I think he's using a a wordplay here when he talks about the law of faith and the law of works. Law, as we've seen, can mean different things. Here, I think law is actually uh, better translated, as a lot of scholars say, as principle. So he's comparing and contrasting the principle of works with the principle of faith that he's just outlined in the verses above. And he's asking here, basically, what is it that kills boasting? Is it that principle of works or principle of faith? See, principle of works Paul would say that that really does open the door to an opportunity in some way, at least in small measure, for human boasting. Maybe because you're having to accomplish it through effort. But the principle of faith is different. The principle of faith or justification by faith alone centers on the demonstration of the power of God to save someone who is absolutely powerless to save him or herself. That's what the principle of faith says. It's not that you just need to meet God in the middle. It's that you've got to be absolutely saved. You are not someone who is simply sick but dead. You're not simply someone that's in danger. You are desperate in need of help to be raised from death to life. Now, if the gospel shuts out human boasting for the Jew, then I think the same is true for me and you. If Jews could not boast in all the privileges that they had, then how much less, or how much more do we feel the desperation that we have? Now, just to give you an illustration of this, I don't know if any of you have ever joined an exclusive club. Uh, the closest thing I have is a pastor's gathering every month that is just for senior pastors. Not a lot of people trying to break in. But there are exclusive clubs out there, like the Core Club in New York, where you are invited if you are an exceptional purpose uh, person. You have done amazing things. If you do that, then you can gain access to rub shoulders with people like Bill Clinton and presidents. Now, it's your accomplishments that lead to an invitation to join, and you usually have to purchase a membership and pay hefty annual dues. You you, you have to continue to re-up, but most humans are shut out because they don't have enough success or fame or money. Access to God in the way that it is described in the Bible is actually the opposite of this. The only thing that gets me access to God is actually confessing my powerlessness under sin and trusting the power of God at the cross. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God in 1 Corinthians 1:27 to 29. See, when we come to God, and we are looking for access with him, we don't come with our best resume that runs like a highlight reel of all our greatest accomplishments with maybe just a little of embellishment added in. No, you, you have to leave that actually at the door. To God's resume of his power on display in Christ at the cross is the only thing that gains you access in this world, anyone can come in, but they have to leave every shred of competence and boasting and human effort at the door. See, boasting and human accomplishments, they don't get you in, in God's economy, they shut you out. Now here's our problem. The gospel, it commends a humble sacrificial love that reflects the love that Christ has shown to us Think about it. Christ did not come for us because of what he needed from us. He came to us because of the goodness of God and because we were the needy ones. Sin turns us inward, though. Sin makes us think more of ourselves than we should. So we brag. We fear, and and can I say, I fear, I fear that that people will miss my accomplishments. Are, Are you fearful this morning that someone is going to miss all that you have done, all of your faithfulness, all of the goodness that is in you? We fear that we will not get our fair share. We fear that we will miss out on the glory that we deserve. We become skeptical of others and paranoid about what others are thinking of us, we, we brag in lots of ways. We brag in shifty ways. You know what a shifty brag is? I, mean, I know you know what a humble brag is. But do you know what a shifty brag is? Y'all, y'all, some of y'all know you're a shifty bragger. You brag on your golf game all day long. But you don't want to talk about how things are going at the house. You, you brag about how much money you made last year. You don't talk about how your wife in private is asking for a divorce. We're shifty in our bragging. We we post pictures of how happy we are, how great our life is, so that we can create major FOMO in others, right? Fear of missing out on my great life. And yet you're actually feeling empty inside even as you post it. We brag in dishonest ways. You know what I'm talking about? Dishonest bragging. See, Phoenix is a growing city. Uh, We have businesses springing up everywhere. It's crazy. A lot of you are applying for new jobs, looking to to move up or upwardly mobile. And as you do that, you are sending in your resume, you're filling out your resume, and you're putting forward your strengths as you're supposed to, but aren't you tempted sometimes to lie, to, to embellish, to get the job you want? Now, there's nothing wrong with having a great, honest resume, but we need to be careful that our hearts are not doing something perverted with those resumes and we we need to be careful that we don't start to begin to boast in our achievements and live for that instead of boasting in our creator and redeemer. In other words, is our job ultimately about making us a lot of money, helping us make it to death and have a nice coffin or is it about glorifying God day by day, giving him the glory that he deserves Through our lives, through all of our accomplishments, we brag about ourselves instead of God. That's the main problem. You know, the more we mature in the gospel, what I have found is the more humble I become, the less holy I feel that I am, the more glorious that God becomes, and the more my concern for getting noticed gives way to God getting the props that He deserves. Uh, I wish I was further along in this process, but. The more that we grow in that, the more that we are chiefly, ultimately, mainly more and more concerned with God's glory than our credit. In fact, in First 1 Corinthians one thirty-one, Paul says, "Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Give the glory to God." Now, with justification by faith alone, eliminating human boasting, it makes sense why Paul immediately turns his attention, if he has Jews in mind, to the Gentile inclusion into the people of God in verses 29 to 31. He says, okay, now you're you're ready to understand the Gentile inclusion. Uh, And there we find that he says, God is one and has one people. God is one and God God has one people. We see this in verses 29 to 31. Now, if someone were to ask you as a Christian, what is your favorite verse? Uh, My guess is, is that many of you would probably say something like, John 3.16, for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Or others might say, I think think maybe Matthew 7.1, judge not lest you be judged. But if you were to talk to a Jew and you were to ask what is the most important verse to you, they would tell you that the Shema that we find in Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6 is actually the most important verse or, or six, four to five, is the most important verse to them. Now the Shema, is, it comes from the Hebrew word for listen or hear. And for over 2,000 years, uh, Jews who are faithful have, have woken up with these words on their lips. And, and that verse, it, it goes this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your, your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, you'll notice that as we read verses 29 to 30, Paul cites God as one as a rationale for Jewish and Gentile believers being one people of God through faith. Now, he says this in verses 29 to 30. Let's read those again. Here's what he says. He says, or, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles Also. Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And I think that circumcised by and through faith is speaking of the same thing. It is only through faith that you are saved, whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised. Now, on the face of it, Paul is really just saying that God justifying sinners through Christ's death on the cross has opened one way for both Jews and Gentiles to be made right with God. That is through faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're like me, when you first read this, you, you read since God is one and you're thinking like, I don't quite understand where you're going with this, Paul. Like you just said God is one, like that's a self-explanatory statement for why faith makes sense for Jews and Gentiles coming in. Well, there are a couple of points I think that are helpful for us here. As we think about this, I I think that Paul's use of God is one is his translation of the Lord is one in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. But let me make a couple of observations first. The Lord is one. When Deuteronomy 6 says that, we need to understand it in context. I, I believe that it affirms a couple of things. For one, it's affirming monotheism, that there is one true God and there is no other. Some disagree with that, but I believe that he's affirming that Yahweh is the only true God. Second, the Lord is one also speaks of God's unique covenant relationship with Israel. In other words, in context, it's a context of God speaking of his special covenant with his special people. Now, this is where I think things get more confusing the more you study because. In the context of Deuteronomy, this meant that God would save Israel from her enemies. That would be the nations surrounding them. And the nations are the audience, or spectators, and their duty is really just to look on and witness God saving his people, sometimes from them. Now so here's the problem. In Deuteronomy 6, the Lord is one. It's highlighting, I believe, the exclusivity of Israel's covenant relationship with Yahweh in Deuteronomy. So Jewish writings of Paul's day used this, word, this phrase similarly. When they talked about God as one, they were talking about the exclusivity and the priority of the people of God in Israel. So why does Paul use God as one as a rationale for Gentile inclusion in, into the people of God? Well, this is where I found extremely helpful a work by Chris, Christopher Bruno called God is One. And I want to give him credit where credit is due, but he believes that there's a second text that is really important here, not just Deuteronomy 6, but he also says we also need to understand what Zechariah says in Zechariah fourteen nine. Not only do, do we find the Lord is one, but in Zechariah, he says the Lord will be one in chapter 14, verse nine. Now, in Zechariah 14, one of those minor prophets of the Old Testament, we find that the prophet is speaking of this future day of the Lord. It's going to usher in a state of affairs in creating a new creation with a new heavens and a new earth. And he quotes the Shema in Zechariah 14.9. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. Just that phrase, God is one. And this is what he says in Zechariah 14.9. He says, in the Lord on that day, he will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. Now, if you're reading this, did you catch that Zechariah is saying that on that day, God will be one? It's speaking of a future day of the Lord. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. On that day, the Lord is going to be king over all the earth, not just the promised land. He's, He's here pictured as he is elsewhere in the scriptures as king of all the earth. Now, I take this to describe a coming day when the Abrahamic promises of that offspring that would be a blessing to the nations are going to be fulfilled. And, and on that day, the nations we brought into covenant relationship with God, just like we read about in Isaiah chapter two. Now, th- those who were shut out, they're on that day going to be brought in. And Zechariah then goes on to describe this reality more clearly in Zechariah fourteen sixteen. He says this, Everyone who survives all of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Booths. All of the survivors from the nations, they shall, be, they shall come together to worship God. They shall have access to worship God. And here's why I think this matters in Romans 3.30. I believe that Paul's saying that, The Shema looked forward to a future day when the Jews and their exclusive relationship with the Lord would be opened up to include Gentiles. Now, the only way into a right relationship with the one true God is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And at the cross, we witnessed the day that Zechariah anticipated where God would make a new and better covenant with Christ's people, with the law of faith and Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf at the center. It's a new day. Paul says that day has arrived. That's why justification by faith and the Gentile inclusion are are stitched so tightly together here with God as one. Now this is another way of talking about the already not yet of the promises of God. We see that Christ is ushered in some of the fulfillment already, but we have not yet experienced the fullness of what Zechariah promised. And so we await a greater fulfillment of that when Jesus returns. See, Zechariah is already being fulfilled through Gentiles like us coming to Jesus Christ. But we haven't experienced the fullness of what is to come. Now, I think that this explanation likely tips my hand to how I'm interpreting and understanding verse 31. Notice there that, He says, the principle of faith upholds the law. Now this is informing how I understand verse 31 where Paul asks a last question. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. See, Paul is asking a question. Some Jews accused him of actually believing. Does Paul and those with him overthrow, nullify, or make void? the law? Paul says, by no means. Instead, we uphold or establish the law. Now, this has been understood a number of ways that that we uphold the law. But I think the most straightforward way that we can take it in context is that this phrase points to redemptive historical reality. Now, just to explain this by way of illustration, the way that Paul is understanding the law here in light of the gospel. When I was younger, I had friends and we used to love basketball. I still love basketball. And we would watch Michael Jordan dunk on people and we wanted to dunk on people and so we would lower the goal. Have you ever done that so that you could like, do dunks like you saw on TV? And then we would like, rank the dunks. Sometimes we'd even bring a trampoline in and we would jump up and we'd dunk and would be like, oh yeah, it's just like Jordan. Except for like the trampoline. And the goal's like four feet tall. But what Paul's saying is, is that I think Jews cheated to keep the law and boast in it. No one truly keeps the law. I mean, if they were upholding the law, it was according to their standards where they lowered the rim and they brought in the trampoline. No one could meet. no human in, in the flesh and under sin could keep God's righteous standards. See, truly upholding the law meant no lowering of the goal, no trampolines. The Mosaic law is way higher than a 10 foot goal though. I mean, it is, it reaches to heaven. And so here he's saying like, you don't understand the law. You don't understand how high it is. It is so high that you can't reach it. And so you're lowering it to pretend as though it's attainable, as though you don't need Jesus. We're the ones that uphold the law. We understand it fully as God intended. You are powerless to save yourselves, to reach his standards, and that's why you needed Christ. See, we keep the law by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way to uphold the law. And by his spirit, we then desire to keep his law. And he sanctifies us so that more and more we obey him in Christ and only in Christ and only through God's strength. That's the desperate need that we have and the desperate need that's met in Jesus Christ. So boasting is excluded when God is a one with one people marked by one faith and the one son, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Now, let me close with some applications. First, I don't know who needs to know this or hear this this morning, but God opposes the proud. Okay, I know at least I need to hear that. God opposes the proud. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, don't miss this. That that means, I believe, that your best works, those things that you are most proud of in and of yourself, could be just as dangerous as your worst sins. If they distract you from truly looking to and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Sometimes I get caught up in the trap of, you know, I know we're supposed to count our many blessings one by one. But sometimes I found in life when things have gotten really difficult, I've begun to count my sufferings one by one. And and in that moment, I, I imagine that there's some reason by which God is not doing what he ought to do for me. You ever been there? Now God's always doing way more than what we can imagine in any given moment, but somewhere in there, I know that as I am going through those sufferings that God is patiently humbling me, delivering me from the sin of boasting in myself so that I can be freed to see my deep need of God what only God can do. And and the the more that I seek God, the more that I know God, the more that I sense that I need to know and trust Jesus more. Sometimes it takes amputation in our lives to get us to release the grip of self-confidence to give up, give that up for more confidence in God. I'm not saying that God's not doing a lot of other stuff. I'm not saying that Sometimes wicked sinners are the the reason for our suffering and and God is uh, going to repay that justice on the last day as our great avenger. But I trust that God is even using those worst things for our good. Second, we need to make sure that we beware of the counterfeit moralistic gospel. Now, I, I used to think that, you know, a lawless gospel where people just said, you know what the gospel means, I can live how I want, is like the worst thing in the world Whereas a moralistic gospel where people were just like, kind of like hard nosed about like keeping rules um, and rules that the Bible doesn't even really say are rules. And those who thought that like God's pleased with them because of how obedient they are. And it's really about how great they are that they're saved and others really the problem with them is they aren't living like exactly like them and the Christianity that they live. And so they're not loved by God like they are. I used to think that that was like sort of, you know, not as dangerous as this, but like, you know, just, not really healthy. I think that if we really understand salvation and justification by faith alone, what we find is that is this understanding that God in some way shows us and accepts us based on something intrinsic to us is actually as far from the gospel as that lawless gospel. I mean, Paul makes plain here and in Galatians that adding anything to faith in Christ as a means of being part of the people of God is not just regression of the gospel, it's an absolute suppression of it. So watch your life and your doctrine closely for that subtle shift from boasting in God to boasting in ourselves. It is a kind of belief system that will make you sad. It's a belief system that does not live uh, lead to uh, glorious relationship with Christ forever one way to tell that you've shifted from the gospel of God to that moralistic gospel is when you were going through difficult times, when you were going through suffering, and you begin to ask God questions like, what did I do to deserve this? God, haven't you seen how, how faithful I have been? We see both here a close connection to self-pity and to pride pride I I deserve better have you not been watching what's been happening here I mean those guys they're those are the guys that need the suffering right now I'm in a good place leave me alone in fact I was doing great until the suffering if you just take it away I'd be way holier than I am right now and then it turns to that pride turns to self-pity woe is me we begin to see our obedience as currency with God and when he doesn't provide the services that we expect in return for our works, we become angry and hopeless and disillusioned. And we see God bless others and we feel like God is robbing us when he blesses others. I mean, the moralistic gospel, it just leads to despair, but the gospel of God's grace, it gives us hope. My faith has, over the last weeks, been incredibly helped as I've met with older saints facing death and sickness and chronic pain and you enter in as a pastor equipped with the word of God, the spirit of God and prayer and you're trying to to bring some blessing to them and and then you hear these saints just boasting God facing the the darkness of, of what might come and they're like, let me just tell you about how good God is. It's better than any seminary class. Third, nothing humbles the human heart like the gospel. If we have gotten proud over the gospel, if we have gotten proud over our knowledge of the gospel and our understanding of it and how others don't understand it, if we have become proud, I'm not saying we don't want to pursue understanding and deep knowledge and we don't want to like, like really just take it in. I'm saying if we become proud over that, if we become proud over our own achievements, we need to take in more of the gospel. The cross reminds us that all of life is a grace gift from God. And we only have any hope because of our perfectly just God sending His perfectly righteous Son to die on the cross to forgive complete sinners and give His righteousness in exchange for our sin and our guilt. You know, we should wake up in the morning singing, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. A lot of fights and marriages between Christians and one another, between churches and other churches would cease if we boasted more in Christ and less in ourselves. Maturity in the gospel works out into a happy humility and confidence in God. It is forbearing. But when we are impatient, when I'm angry and impatient and hopeless, sometimes I need nap and food. But if I'm still in a bad place, I need to look to God's word to be reminded of who Jesus is and who I am in Christ, a saved sinner. Now, catch this. If my heart isn't sinking of God's grace, my lips are not going to be boasting in God as I should. Right. I mean, if if my lips aren't praising God, it says something about what's going on in my heart. Fourth, encourage others now, sometimes we don't encourage others because we don't feel like we've received the credit that we deserve. Have you ever had that experience? Uh, I was sharing uh, something with a young man one time and he, he shared a story back to me about how he had got jealous in his heart when he heard one day that a lady had paid, had volunteered to pay for the medical experiences, uh, expenses of one of his friends who couldn't afford them. He said, I got jealous And he said, the first thought in my mind was, God wouldn't do that for me. And he said, what's wrong with my heart that I would get jealous in that way over God's goodness to another believer? You know, we should encourage others with the evidences of God's grace that we see in their lives. We should encourage others as part of the way that we are both seeing where our heart is with God's grace towards others and ourselves, but also as a protection against seeing God in such a a self-centered type way. Uh, There's a story about John Owen who was a brilliant, wealthy theologian. Uh, He was friends with King Charles II who uh, uh, they were also contemporaries of John Bunyan. Um, And one day King Charles, friends of John Owen said, why is everyone going to listen to John uh, John Bunyan? That uneducated tinker, uh, which is just a, a worker with metals, right? He's like, why why are they going? Why don't they listen to you? You're educated. And John Owen, in in reply, he could have put Bunyan down and said, yeah, like I deserve more respect, but instead he said, could I possess the tinker's abilities? Please, your majesty, I would gladly relinquish all my learning. John Owen. Fifth, boast in Jesus. I still remember D.A. Carson saying one thing he learned after all of his years of teaching. He said, my students didn't remember most of what I taught, but what they did remember, they remembered the things that I got excited about. Trinity Bible Church, I hope we are more and more people who get excited about Jesus saving us from our sins and his ability to save anyone. That's what we should be excited about, that God is a God who is powerful to save. No one is so good that they don't need his grace. No one is so bad that they can't get in on this deal. Rich or poor, dumb or smart, good or bad by human standards, happy or sad, white, black, South Korean, even Californians, it doesn't matter. Anyone can get it in on grace. Californians, I'm sorry. We love you. But if you're non-Christian, I want you to know this. You don't have to clean up your life to come to Jesus. You can't clean your life up enough to come to Jesus and him accept you based on you. You are under the power of sin. You are hopeless in your own strength, powerless actually. But Jesus died to rescue you out from under sin, a sin that you could not save yourself from. If you will put your faith in that Christ, You will become no longer an enemy of God destined for his eternal wrath, but a child of God destined for eternal joy with him forever. So if you'll grab hold of him by faith, he will lead you out from under that sin and put you in right relationship with God forever. Don't leave here without doing that today. If if that's you, talk to me, talk to another Christian. We'd love nothing more than to share with you how you can become a child of God. Let's pray.